Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash genre. Over 180,000 titles to choose from from your iPhone, Android, or Kindle. That's audibletrial.com forward slash G-E-N-R-E. Weirdo bookworms unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Genre Junkies. I am your host, Sandra. And I am your other host, Scott. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing awesome. So before we talk about the book this week, I just wanted to give sort of a shout out. I won a contest on our Genre Junkies Instagram with Fun Dead Publications, which was really, really cool. And my prize was I got to pick one of their books uh, to send me. And I picked Night in New Orleans because I'm obsessed with New Orleans. And it's a collection of short stories, obviously set in New Orleans, horror themed. And I love it. It's wonderful. We're probably not going to do a full-scale review on it, but I wanted to give a shout-out to this awesome company and this awesome book, and I can't wait to read more collections and more published things from them. They're based out of Salem, Massachusetts, and they just seem like the most awesome people that I want to hang out with. So you liked the book? Well, yeah, I'm still picking my way through the short stories because I don't always sit down and read a short story collection all at once. But I really like it so far. Do you think I would like it? I think you would. Um, I mean, I love short story collections, specifically horror ones, because it's just fun little compressed scares. And sometimes the right horror story doesn't need to go on and on too much. It's like it almost could, like you could see where this could keep going or you could get backstory. But it's like just the perfect snippet in time. I don't know. I love it. I love a good horror short. Well, that's cool. Check it out. So tonight we are going to talk about The Marvelous Adventures of Gwendolyn Gray by B.A. Williamson. Scott, would you like me to give everyone a synopsis of our story? Please uh, provide our genre junkies listeners with our dust jacket summary of the book. This is the tale of a 12-year-old girl named Gwendolyn Gray who has a very uncommon problem. She literally cannot control her imagination. She's a dreamer, and what she dreams becomes real. This is a particularly strange talent to have in the city where she lives. Gwendolyn is the only spot of color in a gray, dull, and utterly dreary world. One day, however, Gwendolyn gets sucked into a whirlwind adventure. Here she finds friends, color, characters, peril, love, and so much more than she thought could be possible. I love that synopsis of the book. That really well encompasses just how cool it is. Ah, thank you. I thought really hard about it because I have a lot of strong feelings about this book and I wanted to put those across for everybody. So before we get um a little bit more into the uh, backstory and breaking down this book, let's talk about the genre label that it falls under. Specifically, this is a middle grade fantasy. The middle grade term bothers me more than even YA. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've said before that, you know, we think that a book should be classified by just 
how good a book it is and 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 what it is as opposed to the age that it's targeted to of particularly course. like with YA there's so many people who are not young adults who love and just absorb YA middle reader makes it sound like this book is really for middle schoolers and even a little bit younger and i don't think that that's fair to this book at all to to put it into that category yes it features characters in that age range and it it is written in a way that is relatable to that age range but yes this is written for much more than just a 12 year old right so it's almost more like like a like a branding like a, a marketing issue because I, i've read lots of different people's opinions on what makes a middle grade book and you know and what makes a ya book young adult and so on and i think kind of the consensus that i came away with is for something to be middle grade it has to be at an acceptable reading level for someone between the ages of 8 and 12 to be able to quote unquote like kind of digest and understand but if obviously it's a really well-written book it's going to appeal to a lot of different aged people and you can look this up and read people's blog posts and articles and different opinions on you know what specifically makes something middle grade but that's kind of the best way i could think of it it's got to appeal to people in that age range and be something the average middle grade reader can comprehend with no problem. But that doesn't really mean anything about the subtext, the plot, the story, because that can be so far reaching and wonderful for different people. So how new is the middle reader classification? Because Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone specifically, I would classify now, I guess, as a middle reader book, but I never yeah. heard of it referred to as that. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm just totally theorizing here. I think that Harry Potter did a lot to kind of break books into middle reader and YA because so much is just filed under children's. It's just generically children's. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, with the popularity of that and the Hunger Games and so many other things, is it, you know, kind of forced the the marketing industrial complex of books to kind of break things up a little bit easier into more bite-sized chunks. And whether that's good or bad, I, I don't know, because I think, you know, I definitely read books that were adult level when I was in middle grade, and I'm sure there's adults who would try to read middle grade and not be able to get much out of it. So I don't know. It's all just such, it's like made up. I don't know. Well, it almost feels like it is it is a self-rating system, you know, like GPG. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I'm all for kind of presenting it to parents on how appropriate this might be for their child, depending on how they feel, how comfortable they are with what their children are able to absorb as far as themes and settings. But it, I think that there's a better way to do it than to relegate it to quote unquote middle reader. Right, because it's like if you have, you know, a kid that's seven but could totally enjoy this book, do you say like, mm, no, I'm sorry, you're just not quite ready for middle reader. It's silly. And this book is a great example of like, if it was a movie, it would probably be PG-13 because there is violence in it. Fantastical violence, but still violence. But I mean, there's no like intense sexual situations and hard language and gore or anything like that. It's so subjective. 
So Scott, I want to hear your experience score for this book. Well, my experience score is no less than obsession for Aww. this book. I was immediately taken in by the world and the setting, and Gwendolyn is just too precious for words. I just love her. Um, Williamson has a really fast, relatable style that he writes with that really made me feel like I was personally and alone discovering this story through the author. And this is the rare kind of book that makes me feel like I remember feeling when I read A Wrinkle in Time as a child. Oh, that's really sweet of you to say. And, you know, as listeners will know, my opinions on A Wrinkle in Time didn't age as well upon second reading as an adult. But this is more what I what I thought A Wrinkle in Time was going to make me feel when I read it again. It's and, and it, I just love it for that. I think that's a really, really kind experience with this book. And I definitely had a good one myself. Uh, for me, it was a little bit more page turner than obsession, but I really like it. And I, I am going to highly recommend this book. Um, we got this as an arc, but I'm going to buy physical copies and shove it into the hands and faces of everyone I know and meet and come across because I think it's really delightful and a really nice book for our times that we live in. It's a nice little slice of, you know, kind of hope and a childlike wonderment that I think a lot of people could need. We'll break down more about writing style later, but I love how this book had a sense of urgency and a sense of like, is everyone going to be okay? Is everyone going to make it out of this? I didn't feel like it was like predictable to what was going to happen. And so that definitely kept me turning the pages as well. Yeah, there's definitely really dark themes and scary situations that they're put in. I, I agree with you. It's it's scary. So real quick, before I move on to characters, I must say something else in my experience score. Okay. There are airship pirates in this book. Yeah. No, you heard me. We won't get too far into that, but there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who loves kind of steampunky settings and characters, mm -hmm. and this has it. Yeah, there is a lot of really cute kind of entry-level steampunk things going on. The pirates are very satisfying. They're not just satisfying for being middle grade pirates or airship pirates. They're just good pirates. Like, and I love pirates like a lot of people out there. And I'm always kind of like, that's like a buzzword that'll like capture me and be like, ooh, pirate. But sometimes pirates are very much a letdown in the literature world. This is not so. Read it. Experience the pirate joy for yourself. So let's talk about characters a little bit more. Can I start on this one? Please do. So um, I'm a girl. I'm female. And I could relate a lot to Gwendolyn as a 12-year-old girl. She was more naive than I. And obviously, from this weird, dull, gray, brittle world she lives in, <laughs> she's going to have a little bit of a different experience than me. But there was some things about her that I found so true and so heartwarming and made me think a lot about myself being that sort of tween and early teen age that clearly is universally true, whether you're from our world or Gwendolyn's. One thing that I really loved about her is that she's different and she's proud of being different. But at the same time, it can be sad and lonely and scary to be different and to be kind of ostracized by her peers. But at the same time, she she's not ashamed of it. She's not ashamed of herself. And I think that's a really important message to carry into adulthood of embracing what makes you different and unique. And I know that's sort of a trite expression that's used a lot. 
like, oh, just embrace your differences. But no, really, like, embrace them. <laughs> like, you totally should be fearless like Gwendolyn is. Um, I highlighted this one part that I absolutely love that reminded me so much of myself as a teen. Dreading the inevitable day when she would be forced to become a lady and get a job, or worse yet, a husband. She shuddered at the thought. She didn't want to grow up. She didn't want to be a lady. Ladies were boring. <laughs> that is totally how I thought. I was like, to I was absolutely that at that age, which is probably how girls should be at that age. I'm like, ew, like, I mean, I wanted to grow up. I wanted to, you know, be older and everything, but I didn't want to be an adult, like, gross. And I was like, I feel you, girl. I feel you. Because at that age, it's a very... It seems like a boring, yucky life to become an adult. I appreciate how Gwendolyn is very uncomfortable with how different she is, and she's uncomfortable with how people treat her because she's different, sure. but she loves what makes her different so much that she still does it anyway. Absolutely. That's what, what I'm saying. I totally agree. There's a lot of books where the where the character will just be, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm just going to be who I am. And she's not that. And, but she is far from a conformist. She she just loves herself and her imagination so much that even though things are very hard for her because of it, she would never give that up. She never could give that up. That's absolutely correct. She's a she reminded me, of course, a lot of Meg and a lot of uh, from Wrinkle in Time and other kind of heroines of that sort of age range and genre where she's just she's plucky and she's bright and she's curious. She's coming into her own and herself, and that's scary because she's starting to, you know, she still has a lot of her childhood things, but at the same time, she's kind of getting interested in boys a little bit, and she's caring a little bit more about wearing a pretty dress and, and stuff like that that I thought was very, very cute and very relatable. I like that you brought up Meg from A Wrinkle in Time because I agree, I I feel that they have a lot of similarities. Oh, they'd be great friends. Yeah, it's not approached in the same way, but they're they're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. I think this book actually has a lot in common with A Wrinkle in Time while still being like just it's a totally different book, yeah. but it has those themes of light science fiction and mm -hmm. a little bit of a little bit of of a dystopian feeling as well, more than a little bit. Uh. And and I like that. I I definitely feel that particularly because uh, Williamson makes references to other fantasy, sci-fi, middle <laughs> reader tropes. Hilariously, by the way. A Wrinkle in Time absolutely had to be a large um, inspiration for this book. Oh, I totally agree. So, uh, of course, the book would be very boring unless we got some other people thrown in there for a little dramatic tension and whatnot. And off on her adventuring, she meets a brother-sister duo who the boys around her age, his name is Sparrow, and his older sister's about 16, 17, I believe, and her mm -hmm. name is Starling. And they're a very fun little trio to adventure with. They're all very different in their personalities. They all, you know, kind of have their agendas and their way of speaking and their style, which I thought was really cute because I, I could see how maybe people would be worried that the, the author of a quote-unquote middle-grade book may skimp a little on character, but I, I definitely don't think that's the case in this. I specifically liked Starling's uh, I'm so grown-up attitude that she kind of had. I also related to that in my later teen years, 
And she has blue streaked hair, and she's like a cool inventor chick. Yeah, she's a tinkerer. I loved that. Yeah, she's a tinkerer. That's perfect. She is a tinkerer. I really liked, I, I, I can't say that I identified with him necessarily, but I really liked Sparrow. He's just so brash and instinctual and he's like this little comedian and he's always doing things for a reaction or a laugh and yeah he's just a little charmer and everyone knows someone like that a lot of us are people like that and he's just he's just a very fun character and and both starling and sparrow are just so they the characters themselves were are written from the heart and they're just very feeling and lovely characters. I like that phrase that they're written from the heart. I could not agree more. Um, and they they really, all three of them, plucked at my heartstrings quite extensively <laughs> through the reading of this book. So her parents, Gwendolyn's parents, are not a huge part of this book. And they're, you know, they're kind of boring people because they're from her uh, yucky, bland world where nobody cares about finding out about what's outside the city. And it is, you know, the city and capital. But they still were not horrible people, which I appreciate. They loved her. And I thought that was so nice. It wasn't like she has to run away because everything about her life is so completely god awful that you like are like, oh my god, I can't believe she's in this abusive situation, or the parents died in a freak accident, or there's no wicked stepmother. It's nothing like that. They just kind of suck because everybody except Gwendolyn sucks there. Kind of on a note about the parents and how they're kind of lame, right? Gwendolyn didn't know what father did exactly, but it had something to do with answering lots of messages, sending them back, sitting through meetings and complaining that nothing ever got done at the meetings. Personally, she didn't want any part of it, if you please, and thank you very much. The grown-up world was quite as unfathomable to her as the depths of the ocean or the beaches of Zanzibar. I, lo I love that quote because it's appropriate for the story because I don't know if he is actually doing anything, really. But it's, it's a really good explanation of how children see their parents' jobs when they're younger. Right, exactly. And especially in a dull world where nothing exciting ever happens, there's no imagination, there's no creativity. There's no spark except for her. It's like, yeah, like how awful would the jobs be there? They would be terrible. And I kind of pictured it like in the first Incredibles movie, like where Mr. Incredible has to like work in as an insurance person. And it's just like, oh, God, like someone take me away from this place. And so in regards to her mother, and this is in the very first chapter of the book. At Gwendolyn's forlorn expression, Mother softened slightly. She truly loved her daughter, but poor Mary Gray was not at all certain how to handle a girl who was so different. She would lie awake at night and wonder what was to be done and scold herself for all the time she had been too harsh with Gwendolyn. Parents are worried and tired creatures, so we should not be too harsh with Mary either. Oh, see, that's like, that's just, it's okay, Mary. It's not your fault you weren't cut out to be an awesome person like your daughter. I mean, her parents do some crummy things throughout the book, but it's a lot of it is very much set within the fact that they really do love her. They just are they are crummy people like everyone else in this crummy city. So kind of on the same branch as the parents and everybody being crummy and not wanting to grow up and be a lame adult. I loved this passage. Again, some of these things that this Mr. Williamson writes are just so funny and 
maybe a bit over the heads of most of the 8 to 12 year old readers, but this is why it appeals to everybody. It is a well-known fact that children are more adaptable than grown-ups. If, for example, you woke up one morning and were suddenly a giant cockroach, as a grown-up, you might spend weeks locked in your room, agonizing over the unfairness of existence and pointlessness of life. As a child, on the other hand, you would quickly learn that being a giant cockroach is a fantastic way to frighten your sister, that no one will ever stop you from eating all the junk food you like, and that six arms makes you a tremendous athlete. (laughs) I was so charmed by that because obviously it's a Kafka reference, which I love the metamorphosis. And it's like, yeah, it's so true. Like if it was like a 12-year-old kid, they would have been like, I'm a cockroach and my life just became more awesome. Well, and this leads into one other character that I want to talk about that also leads yeah. into into Williamson's writing style, and that's the narrator. Oh. It's not to say the narrator really is a character or, or, or appears suddenly in the book necessarily, but Williamson uses a trick in this book that used to be very common in classic literature that's really fallen out of favor, and that's what's known as authorial intrusion or literary intrusion, which sounds really negative. I I like to think of it as uh, a narrative aside. Yeah. The narrator of the book talks to you directly as the reader throughout this entire book. And it's so charming and so classic in the way that it's done. It makes it feel like that this book could have been written a long time ago. and, And it gives it this very literary classic feel that just charms you and brings you into the world. Right. It's like at once fantasy And it's a breaking of the fourth wall. If anybody else like me and Amanda grew up on a steady diet of Saved by the Bell as a kid, it's when Zach Morris looks away from whoever he's talking to and looks into the camera and speaks directly to us. It's it's like that. I think that all of the quotes that we just read show an example of that particular writing style in the book. Right. It's very um, it's very cheeky. It's very like winky, winky, nudge, nudge. Not in a bad, pretentious way, but in like a, hey, this is a story and we're experiencing it together and I'm going to shed a little insight right here. And it's nice because the author adds insight into the character's own thoughts. In the narration, there will be descriptions of what Gwendolyn is thinking, but then the author will actually kind of jump in and translate those thoughts into what's really happening deep down in the character's mind. Mm -hmm. It's very refreshing and it's just warm. That's the best word I can use for it. It's like you're sitting at a campfire and someone is telling you the story. Oh, that's adorable. And that's true that that's sort of a character that leads into writing style in general. Um, So aside from that device that he uses in his writing, um, I was just very happy with his writing in general. It wasn't um incredibly stark. It left a lot to the imagination, but it was lush and pretty. Williamson is just full of so much wit in this book. Uh, He just he throws in so many references to other fantasy tropes and other Mm -hmm. young adult tropes. And he makes little jokes. It's he's very self-referential. I agree. And if you're worried that any of this way that he writes could be annoying, um, I would still urge you to put that fear aside and try to read the book. Because it it really is not annoying and it's not disruptive to the characters or the storyline. It's woven in seamlessly. 
Yeah, I guess the way that we're describing it makes it sound a little bit like The Princess Bride, which is a beautiful book on its own. But the author in that book is, I mean... Invasive? It actually is invasive. I mean, it's very funny and where he goes on entire chapter tangents on how he removed this. One of my favorite references is he removed five chapters about the dinner plates. It's not like that. It's not so much that the author just goes on and on and becomes this own person and becomes intrusive into the story. There's just little bits like, hey, I'm telling you this story and hey, let me give you a little bit more context here. Yeah, it's just really nice, knitted in, settled in very naturally. So as far as appeal goes, I kind of have a feeling what Scott's going to say. So I'll start. (laughs) Okay, that works. I'm going to give this book a broad appeal. I don't think it's, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be quite as sensational for everyone ever to feel as in love with it as we do. But I think that most people, especially readers, could really enjoy this book and have a really nice departure and some really beautiful things to think about. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the spoiler section, what I mean on that. Um, So I'm being kind of deliberately vague here in what I'm saying, because I want you to read the book a lot and then come back and listen to our spoiler section. This book is out now, by the way. It came out May 15th. So you have no excuse to not read it. I... I'm surprised you're giving this a broad appeal because I, I don't know what's not to like in this book. Uh, it has it's science fiction, fantasy, it's really sharp writing style, really relatable characters. The adventures that she goes on are really high stakes and exciting. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, I, I'll go ahead and say, obviously, I think this has mass appeal. Uh, clearly. I think Gwendolyn Gray has the potential to be a Harry Potter-level book. I think it does, too, but I'm just not quite ready to pull that mass trigger. I think I might know what it is about this book that's t- taking you down from mass, and I and it, we have, obviously, to go to the spoiler section to do it. Then let's do it. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. Welcome back to the spoilers section, where we can talk a little more freely and openly about the marvelous adventures of Gwendolyn Gray. And I cannot express enough, if you haven't read the book, read the book first, because... What are you doing? Yeah, There is definitely some stuff in this book that you don't want spoiled for you. No, so stop it. Go away. Read the book. Okay, so just real quick, real quick, let's just talk about pirates. Let's talk about pirates. Hey! Okay, so pirates. I love pirates. I express that. Scott loves pirates. We are definitely pirate people. We are not only, um, well, you know, fantastical, romantical pilot pirates, not so much like, you know, the modern day pirate. But we also love airships. We love airship pirates. This did not disappoint. And I had no idea from the synopsis of the book that it gave that we were going to go into a pirate story. And now I didn't want to spoil that too much. But I feel like you need to let people know there's going to be pirates because that is a selling point. I think it really is a selling point, And I feel like it needed to be on the cover of the book. I, th- I felt yeah. the cover of the book was okay, but 
there's not enough of that actual adventure on that cover. There's definitely the wonder on that cover, but the adventure right. and the pirates and the steampunkiness and the cogs and the tinkering, that that's what really got me. I mean, I loved it yeah. from the very beginning, but that's what really brought me in. So when Gwendolyn gets sucked up into this world, she meets the crew from her book, Colonius and his perilous pirates. Colonius is amazing. I loved him. He is a fun, sometimes incredibly irritating, teenage boy pirate captain with a tremendous backstory that we barely even get to touch on because, as the author slash narrator says, mm, it's for another time. We do get to know a little bit that he was enslaved, his whole family was killed, his crew is made up of people who were wronged by this bad um pirate Tylerium, but I really loved him. I thought him and Starling's kind of hate to love awkwardness was incredibly cute and incredibly romantic in a way that only a tween girl could kind of dream up. Um, I also love that he was a person of color too, which is really cool because we always need more cool people of color characters, especially for um kids. I just felt that he was so... I don't even know the word for it. He was just so fun. He yeah. was he was brash and he was take charge and he was charge. Charge. <laughs> but he was so much a typical 16/17-year-old teenage boy who has these deep insecurities and just covers them up with bravado. Absolutely. He's kind of like the big brother you always wanted as a kid, like where he's kind of mean and he kind of picks on you. But, you know, it's because he really loves you and he has this tremendous heart, but he loves to just laugh in the face of danger. That's just the best way I can think of it is like this so idealized version of the best big brother you could ask for as a kid. I have um, a highlight from him, too. I mean, what if it all falls apart and we're forced to improvise and fight to get out alive? He grinned wickedly. Well, we call that a Tuesday. I mean, it's just like so perfectly like that spirit of adventure, Pirates of the Caribbean, like swashbuckling, yet there's also airship stuff. The vibe that I didn't even know I wanted so badly that I got it. He's like young Indiana Jones meets Peter Pan if he's growing up. I totally agree. That's a great way to put him. Um, what else did you want to say about characters that you couldn't say in the spoiler section? Well, again, a lot of it has to do with the pirates. I love Colonius's first mate. He's just this loving, it's you like know, a gentle giant. Exactly. He he is. He would be played by Andre the Giant Aww. in the movie of uh, in the movie of this book. He's just a a, a gentle, loving, or or John Reese Davies. He's got like a handlebar mustache, like. He's silly. I like that. And he kind of acts as the adult presence in this book that it does actually need a little bit of. It needs that elder statesman seasoned individual's perspective on Mm -hmm. the events of the book every once in a while. And he's very good at filling that that void. Oh, I totally agree. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the abscess, the collector, the Mr. Men, our foes in this story. Mr. Five and Mr. Six. Yes. Um, I found them to be a wonderfully creepy dystopian device. They were threatening and scary, just like the abscess the collector was, without being, quote unquote, too much for a non-adult book. But I mean, like, 
people died. Like, bad things happen. And Gwendolyn had to deal with the consequences of her actions, though they weren't her fault because she's incredible, but they killed people. It killed people. And that got her down a lot. And I found that was just a really nice, dare I say, horror element to this story that I wasn't expecting either. Again, no crazy blood, viscera, anything like that, extreme violence, but it was scary. The abscess and the Mr. Men were really scary. And the way that Gwendolyn handles the death of thousands of characters in front of her eyes is very believable and very sad. I mean, the way that she even says she doesn't feel she still she finds joy in different things because the world is so fantastical and different than what she had experienced. But she feels so guilty for even feeling that because really, there's horrible things that are happening. I agree. And I think it was very responsible in a coming of age sort of way, because Gwendolyn is feeling all these coming of age feelings, as I mentioned, and she's, you know, kind of having feelings for Sparrow that blossom throughout the book in a really sweet and organic way. And she's learning that part of growing up is your actions have consequence. And whether you mean to or not, sometimes bad things happen. And sometimes you are a part of why bad things happen. And I think that's a really difficult lesson to even learn as an adult, let alone, you know, when you're still forming as a person. I want to talk a little bit about her relationship with Sparrow, Mm -hmm. because that's one of the things that this as a quote unquote middle reader book, uh, it's one of the things that shows the most in it. And it's actually one of the things that I found the most refreshing because mm-hmm. it's very clear from the very beginning that there is a spark there. And it's obvious that the two of them are going to have a bit of a romance. Uh, right. Romance is not really the right word, but it's it's they they have feelings for each other. I guess it is a romance, but it's a very innocent romance. Exactly. It's so uncomplicated, really. At, yeah. From the very beginning, she... She has feelings. She doesn't exactly question them. She, of course, fights them a little bit. But I find that to be very refreshing for it to be so uncomplicated in their innocent uh, love for each other. Very cute. Very chaste, I suppose. But not so that as a, you know, grown up person that I am, I felt like annoyed or ever creeped out or like any of the romance between all of these not adult age people were like moving too fast or was unhealthy. Oh, I completely agree. It was very chaste is a good word for it. It's just it's very pure. Yeah. But, you know, we read so many books where one or both of the characters just completely deny their love for someone else or <laughs> right. they just completely deny their own feelings and yes you know it starts with just this almost hatred for the other person and right. they, until they realize well really it's because i love them it's just so refreshing to see something that's just so pure it's like yeah wow he's i mean she does not ever say wow he's really cute but well, no, I mean, I think I think you said it exactly with that, because um, we both do like romance and books, and we like some angst and some will they, won't they, and, you know, all that stuff, of course, like all people who like a little romance in their books like, but it was so nice that it was just completely appropriate for the story without trying to be anything else. 
Um, so kind of as we hinted to in the um, non-spoiler section, there is so much about this book that is so tongue-in-cheek, so incredibly funny. Um, a lot of it just based on you know, <laughs> referentialness will go over the heads of young kids. And I, I I loved those. Like we shared a couple of them to kind of, you know, what everybody's appetite for like, this is this is, you know, what you're going to get in this book. Um, th- There was another one that I loved that I wouldn't have understood as a kid personally. Um, When they're talking about that mad scientist uh, character. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, He looked exactly as you might expect a mad scientist to look. Though there were so many mad scientists in Capernaum, they'd had to form a union with all sorts of rules just to keep from blowing themselves up every other Saturday. I mean, <laughs> like, come on. That is hilarious. <laughs> They've organized. It's just when you when you enter a world where everyone is a little bit mad and everyone's a a, a genius. Yeah, it's just it's it. A, a mad scientist is just basically a job. And Scott is a former union leader. I know that probably, I mean, you can just imagine like what mad scientists uh, union town halls would be like. I, I mean, it's just something that for adults, it just makes you chuckle so hard. And that as a kid, you'd be like a union. Oh, yeah, kind of what that is. Another example of a little nugget of quote from this book that I, hi- I if I had, if I could highlight 5,000 times, I would have because I almost want this to be on my gravestone. <laughs> a truly clever person is never bored. They have everything they need right between their ears. Well, you know, I highlighted that too. Oh, it's it was. He's so good. Okay, John or Junkies regulars will know we don't usually quote books. The fact that we have pulled so many quotes from this book just shows how good his writing is. When there's things that we just had to stop and highlight for ourselves so that we could remember and that we could come back to that's how good this is um i think that is so amazingly apt and it's why we're both readers it's why we started genre junkies because it is my opinion that if you're a reader you're never bored and i mean this is truly clever people which is true that there's so many ways to be clever and to fill the hours of life and reading is one of them And I thought it was just a beautiful expression because I'm a big, I get very um, annoyed. I guess it's one of my big pet peeves when people are like, I'm bored. I'm bored. And it's like, well, you know what? Why don't you take up a hobby? Why don't you go outside? Why don't you read a damn book? Like, I don't want to hear about your boredom. If you're a reader, you should never, you might be bored with the book, but you should never be bored and you're never lonely. I want 100%. 100%. And I love that this message was so beautifully and succinctly put in a kid's book because that's another wonderful reminder um, to kids. So can we get a little weird? Let's get weird. Yeah. I mean, that is another thing that could be on my tombstone is she made it weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am one of those people that on occasion... And by occasion, I mean fairly often. I like to overthink books and read things into it that perhaps the author uh, (laughs) did not intend. But that's fine because I I think most authors are cool with that because they're like, you take out of it what you take out of it, right? And for me, this book was extremely emotional um, and very spiritually touching for me 
And yeah, it's it's not only getting weird, it's getting real. But a great example of that, not only is the quote we were just talking about, about being a truly clever person, when we get to the end and kind of the grand reveal that this was all in her imagination, essentially, um, it's hard because it's kind of a rude awakening. But at the same time, like Gwendolyn, I kind of knew that like the whole time I was like, and you know, because, you know, she found the birds in the woods and they look like them and stuff. And you're like, that's what she does is her imagination makes things real. It's hard for me to exactly put into words my overthinking is here, but she kind of go with me here, people. She is kind of God. <laughs> like <laughs> Gwendolyn Gray never sticks the figment in the air and declares she is God that I remember. But um, she made a world and she made life. And into the world she was already living in, the gray yucky city, she brought life and creativity and all the things, the spark, they call her the spark throughout the book. She's kind of like the Big Bang, <laughs> like all rolled up in the package of a 12-year-old girl. And I found this book to be very emotionally heartfelt and spiritually um riveting to me like i was kind of shook by it and i think for me that's one of the reasons why i can't give it a mass appeal is because i don't know that everybody would see that or appreciate that but it was really beautiful how she creates things and she does it so innocently and from such a wonderful place in her heart I had a feeling that the ending of this book was going to be why you didn't give it a mass appeal score. I love that there is a message that there is a little bit of God or creation in all of us, mm -hmm. and it lives in our imagination. Right. The ending of the book was particularly heartbreaking for me as well. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's hard. <laughs> it's because of what I said earlier about you're never lonely if you are a reader. There's something about characters and books that live on after the book has ended in your head. They become a part of you. And to have the characters in the book not only be a part of my imagination, but ultimately just be a part of her imagination, it hurt. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. It's like, it hurt, but it's like the best kind of hurt, right? Like It is. And, and ultimately, I... I was okay with it and I I accepted it and I think it's a I think it's beautiful and it has a really powerful message because at the end uh I believe it's Starling who says who's to say what is real. Oh yes, and I was hitting the amen. Amen, Mr. Williamson button on that. But there is a part of the ending of the book that genuinely hurts. It, it genuinely cuts deep. And in a way that I'm not fully prepared to forgive Williamson for. Oh my goodness. That sounds very attacking of the author. I I have no real complaint with him and his decision. Yeah. It just it didn't feel fair to me. Oh. And I think that that's powerful. I think that that's important and that's why I I can't 
really hold that against him. I can't grade the book down because of it. It just, it's something that will always hurt me a little bit because there's so many stories to be told by these characters. I mean, the narrator himself says that's a story for another time. Well, yeah. Is it then? These people, all these characters are figments. So it's kind of like, oh, it's so hard to accept it being over. But I think you put it perfectly. The characters live on. And I think that's part of the, the message he was giving us. But there's something about her losing her imagination in a way, the power of her imagination that it almost, it almost kills them. But here's the thing is, I disagree with you that she lost her imagination. That's the whole thing is instead of holding it just for her as she'd been doing, she literally (laughs) sacrificed herself for all of humanity. She still has an imagination because she she still has her imagination, obviously, like it's not like going to, you know, it's not like dried up or anything. And I don't think he implied that. But now she's letting Tommy under the tree read the book. And it was all kind of foretold. It was all kind of destined. That's why the figment was engraved with her initials originally. This was, it was meant to be. It was fated that she would go on this journey and experience these things and bring essentially life and that which makes us human to all the people. Wow. So in conclusion, we have to give our final score. And so, Scott, I shall ask you, how many Badger Tea Parties out of 10 (laughs) would you give this book? All right. I'm going to give this book nine Tea Parties out of 10. Why did I not give this book 10 out of 10? Because of the ending. I'm still raw and bleeding from the ending. Um, There's so many extra stories to be told that I feel like I'll never get anymore. And yes, I can. It's very meaningful. I can make up those stories in my own imagination. And that's very powerful. And that's the message. But I'm raw. I'm hurt. I'm I'm damaged. And so I'm taking I am taking a tea party away from you, Mr. Williamson. I am taking one away and I am keeping it because I just I can't do it. Oh my god, that like made me cry. It was so funny. I agree. I think we're all feeling a little vulnerable, a little um spiritually exposed. <laughs> um I will give it I'm gonna give it also nine badger tea parties out of ten. I can't exactly put a finger on why I'm holding back on that tenth tea party. I think it's for a lot of the things that you said as well. But I mean nine badger tea parties is already incredible. Oh, yeah. And and I want to give this book 10. I'm just too hurt. <laughs> exactly. I'm not ready. I'm not ready, Mr. Williamson. Revisit us at the end of the year when we do like a recap episode or something. There was one other quote that I really liked um, when she's grappling <laughs> with how she's ruined everything. <laughs> she says, it's hard to stay sad or upset for long periods of time, especially in the face of so many wonderful things. And I think that's a really important message for us in life. And that's why I was kind of thinking about how this is like a really good story for our times. Things are really bad, but life is still really incredible. And 
you know, there's kind of always something good and beautiful to find in everything. And it's like, man, it's sometimes it's hard to be down when you're like, wow, like the universe and everything is so incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's even better when you read. Well, I think that that quote is a really good place to leave this. And so, as always, our dear, beloved genre junkies, we ask you and encourage you to please keep reading past your bedtime.